Right now, we're continuing our Unlikely Heroes series, and we're talking about one of my favorite individuals from Scripture. And I want to start by just asking, who's been stuck in the mud before? Anybody willing to admit? Okay, we've got a couple people willing to admit that. A couple weeks ago, I was up at a property out towards Front Royal. A family friend of ours owns a good amount of property, and I do work up there. I help just maintain the property, and I was up there after a long period of rain by myself on a weekday at about Friday. I uh, just took the Friday off and went out there and decided to just by myself. You know, it's great because there's no cell phone reception. It's nice, peaceful, quiet. It's large piece property. You don't see anybody. And there's about a mile, mile and a half of dirt and rock road. And I was going up there to do some work. And I go back to the furthest part of the property. And there's a pond back there. And it's fed by a lot of natural springs. And it's a beautiful place. I love it. But after a long period of rain and some natural springs, you know, it gets kind of wet. And so I'm driving through there, and all of a sudden, the ground just feels different. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, all of a sudden, it feels real solid, and then it's just different. And it's not like a good different. And I'm sitting there, and as soon as you feel that soft dirt, you go, okay, something's going to happen, right? Like, your mind begins to race, talking about that anxiety and stress already. You know, it just starts to go, okay, what's going to happen? How do I get out of this? So I slow down. And I start pressing the gas. I've got a pickup truck. It's four-wheel drive. And there's one point where I'm coming out from the pond, and there's about a 30-degree bank. And I'm trying to go straight, but my truck, every time I hit the gas, goes sideways. Anybody ever been there? I hope not. You, you think you're going straight. You hit the gas, but your truck goes sideways. And you realize, okay, this is not going to be a good thing. And I'm realizing as I'm thinking through this, my anxiety's building. I've got this pit in my stomach and what makes it worse is I'm out there by myself. I have no cell phone signal. I've got a mile and a half of long road to walk, and then a call I have to make to the owner, right? Because out towards Front Royal, it's like an hour drive. The owner's at work, and what's going to happen? I'm going to have to own up, confess, and this pit's developing in my stomach, and I'm saying, I really don't want to make this call. This is going to be an embarrassing moment. It's going to be shameful. He's going to look at me and be, think how irresponsible I am how unsafe I was, maybe I'll lose access, maybe he won't let me up here alone anymore, and all these things are running through my mind. I'm really dreading this call. The good thing is, I didn't have to call him out there. I was able to get out. But the next week, I talked to the owner, and I'm like, okay, you know, just want to let you know everything looks good up at the pond. You know, I don't want to mention anything about the the truck yet. And uh, he's like, you would not believe it. Somebody left all kinds of tire tracks up there, (laughs) and it looks awful. And there's damage everywhere. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't think I was that bad. Like, I didn't spin the wheels. I was, like, trying to be as careful as possible. And so I I practiced something called timely wisdom. Instead of just confessing, saying, oh, God, it was me, I ask an open-ended question. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, where was it around the pond? What did it look like, you know? And he's like, well, you know, it's really torn up, but you would not believe Ken got stuck up there, and all of a sudden, all that anxiety's gone, right? (laughs) Everything's gone. He's like, Ken got stuck up at the pond, and he just gunned it trying to get out in his truck. And instead of going forward or sideways, he went down, and he was literally sitting on the frame of his truck. And he's like, I had to take that tractor... A 45-minute tractor ride out to that back part of the property to get him out. And it's just completely torn up. I tell all that because sometimes there's a message that we don't want to give. Sometimes we know the message we have to give is going to affect a relationship. And when I got in that situation, I felt every bit of that fear 
and concern that what I'm going to say is going to completely change the relationship I have. And it's true because the guy who actually got stuck, that relationship's not going so well right now. In Jeremiah, the person we're talking about this morning, there's a line in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 38, 6, that says, Jeremiah sank in the mud. He sank in the mud. And I believe this line in Jeremiah epitomizes his whole career. It epitomizes his emotional state, his relationships, because Jeremiah had a message that he had to give to Israel. And where he finds himself when this verse comes up is in the bottom of a cistern that was once full of water, and he's literally sinking in the mud as the people he's talking to are trying to kill him. Jeremiah sank in the mud. And this typifies his whole career his 35, 40 years of speaking this message, this one thing, that pit in the stomach, the anxiety in his mind, he sank in the mud. I believe Jeremiah is an emotional wreck. If you know anybody like that, it can be kind of challenging to be around. He's an emotional wreck. And essentially, if you read this book, you see the full swing of emotions. And it's almost like everything is thrown into a soda bottle and just shaken up, and one trigger hits and the whole thing comes out. It's good, it's bad, it's ugly, it's frenetic, it's, it's mellow, it's, it's all over the place. And when I think of common heroes, I think of solid individuals, people who are focused. They're able to harness their emotion for good, to make a good change. But Jeremiah is not this. Scholars have long considered him either depressed or manic. He's swinging on that spectrum from extremes over and over again. Let me read to you some of the verses. Jeremiah 16, 8. The Lord tells him, And you are not to go into any house where there is celebrating, to sit with them, eating and drinking. Jeremiah is forbidden at times to celebrate the normal things of life. Jeremiah 8.18, My joy is gone, grief is upon me, and my heart is sick. Jeremiah 23.9, My heart is crushed within me. All my bones shake. One scholar says he is literally so wrecked with emotion that he walks around like a drunken man that has no strength in his limbs. Walks around like a drunken man with no strength in his limbs. He's overwhelmed. He's overtaken by this emotion. Jeremiah 15, 10. I wish I had never been born. I have become a source of conflict and dissension in my own country. Wishes he'd never been born. And he's swinging back and forth on this emotional spectrum. Jeremiah 25, 3. For 23 years I have spoken to you, Israel, but you have not listened. Could you imagine having one message, one job, doing that same job for 23 years and seeing no outcome, no benefit? Hopefully you're not in that place this morning. Hopefully you'll see something. But he's at that point where there is absolutely no hope and no one has ever listened to his message. 23 years. There are several portions in Jeremiah's writings that scholars have labeled confessions. And when I think of confessions, I either think of like, you know, if you've ever sat in a Catholic booth or maybe you've seen the movie, you know, this kind of dark room, you know, you've got a divider behind you, between you and the priest, and he asks, what's going on? You know, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. You go through this list of things. I yelled at my kids, whatever it is. This is not Jeremiah. Jeremiah's confessions are not nice and neat the way we would think they would be. Gerard von Rod, he's a 20th century theologian and biblical scholar. He writes this about Jeremiah's confessions. In his confessions, we encounter the entire spectrum of human emotional distress. Fear of shame, fear of failure, loss of strength, doubting of faith, 
loneliness, pity, shame, disappointment, turning to hostility toward God. This is a prophet who's following God but is incredibly hostile to God. He's angry with God. He's lonely. He feels shame. He's afraid of the people around him. And this is not what I think of when I think of a hero or a prophet or somebody following God. He is emotionally wrecked, and it overtakes his life. I have a three-year-old named Eli, and I love this kid. He's pretty good. 80% of the time, he's the best. 80%. 80%. Any parents kind of know that ratio. 80%, he's great. The other 20%, I don't know who this kid is. It about breaks a person. Like, it can send you over the edge emotionally. 80%, he's amazing. 20%, he's pretty rough. And it's, it's crazy. It can be over anything. This is kind of why we call them temper tantrums. They just come out of nowhere for apparently no reason. It can be over coloring with the wrong color crayon, having the wrong snack, wearing the wrong pair of shorts, Anything. And lately, over the past two weeks or so, my wife and I, Joanne, have been experiencing these tantrums around going to preschool. And our kid wakes up at 5 a.m. Please pray for us. <laughs> preschool does not start till 9. <laughs> and what this means is at about 6 o'clock in the morning, he goes, I don't know if I want to go to school. Or I'm not going to school. And then you enter into two and a half to three hours of almost hostage negotiation tactics where you're not trying to make eye contact, you're not trying to say anything about school, you're trying to drop hints just to warm him up to the idea. But he's just not buying it. And you get to the point where you're about to put him in the car and you think you've got him. Like he's somewhat calm, he's somewhat okay. And you go to get him in the car, talk him into getting up in the car. And he goes, no, I don't want to do preschool. And you're like, oh. We're right here. Let's just latch you in real quick. And he goes, yeah! And arms start flailing, and he's going everywhere. He's jerking. I mean, you've never seen anything like it. It's almost like he's possessed. There's snot coming out. He's crying. He's screaming. And it can go on and on and on. And you can't get him in the seat without hurting him. There's just no way. And it's amazing how this little 30-pound body, you can almost be like wrestling an alligator. I've never seen anything like it. You just can't get him to do it. And I believe, after reading a little bit about childhood development and having a toddler and seeing this occur on numerous bases with other kids also, please, God, it's not just mine, you realize that they have all these emotions within them. Their brain is developing. They can't figure out how to communicate what they desire. And at the same time, they have parents over them enforcing their agenda upon them. They have no control. And what ultimately happens as they're trying to determine who they are and what they want to do and how they do it It's kind of like that soda bottle gets shaken up and all those emotions at once just come out in this flurry of activity. Jeremiah is essentially a grown-up toddler. Everything is thrown in. It's shaken up. He's conflicted because he's got a message that God wants him to deliver, but at the same time, he doesn't want to deliver that message, but he feels compelled by God to do so because it's what's best for Israel. Jeremiah is generally referred to as a weeping prophet. I think he's more adequately referred to as a screaming or a grumbling prophet, not the idea of a hero. But there are two things that I believe make him a hero that move him beyond all these things to that level of hero, and I believe it's his message and his motivation. His message and his motivation. Jeremiah carries a very important message for Israel. Israel has gone through this civil war 
200 years prior to Jeremiah. And they've divided. And the northern kingdom has been taken off into captivity into Assyria. And the bottom kingdom, the southern kingdom, comprised of Judah and Benjamin, where Jeremiah lives, are looking at their situation going, we've got it. We're good. Israel fell because they weren't God's people, but we're better than them. They began to look and say, we've got the temple in our midst. We've got all the religious practices. So God owes us something. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're pretty good politically and militarily. We've got it covered. We're going to build some alliances because Babylon is coming to take them. And they're at risk of being overtaken by Babylon. They say, okay, Assyria, you may have taken our, our, our brothers and sisters in the north, but maybe you can help us. And when Assyria doesn't quite line up, they look to Egypt and say, okay, Egypt, can you help us? And Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, Israel, you're getting it wrong. We need to trust in God. We need to turn to God. Jeremiah has a message to them that is hard for them to hear and receive because Israel's hard to become callous and indifferent to God, become incredibly callous and indifferent to God. And Jeremiah comes along and says, there is something you have to hear, and it's not going to be good for you to hear. You're not going to like it. It's not going to feel good, but it doesn't matter because it's a message of truth and love that I have to deliver. Israel needs to be pushed out of their numbness, their callousness, their lethargy. And so Jeremiah, in his grown-up toddler state, uses everything possible to get their attention. He employs every rhetorical skill, delivers it with frenetic intensity that, that parallels the passion of God. And he uses hyperbolic language and dramatic imagery. If you ever read this book, you, there's almost nothing like it. You think the guy's crazy. You say, how in, this, how in the world could this be in Scripture? It's amazing. Not only that, he, he does things that are almost childish. You know, when we get in fights, we kind of, our age kind of drops a little bit, if you haven't noticed that. When we get in a fight with somebody emotional, like all of a sudden we become a little bit more childish. You know, we're yelling at each other, we're throwing things, we're, we're walking away, we're pouting, we're getting in a pity, whatever it is. We become a little bit childish when we get in those moments. And so Jeremiah breaks clay jars. He sets stones on fire. He hides pottery from people. Who hides pottery from people? He gets into a fight with another prophet and literally, they're breaking things off of each other's shoulders in a fit of rage. And Jeremiah walks out defeated and a couple days later comes back, sneaks into the place, scares him and says, nope, I'm right. Like, it's just, it's childish. But he's got a message that he has to deliver and he wants Israel to hear. Because without them hearing this message, Israel's walking into a world of trouble. The reason why we have this book, despite all of this character's issues, flaws, emotional distress, is not because it's a character study on the person of Jeremiah. If it was a character study on the person of Jeremiah, nobody would care. This book is in here because it's more about the message than it is about the man. It's more about the message than it is about the man. What I think is powerful for us this morning is the way our lives are going to find significance, the way we're going to find purpose, our identity, is when it becomes more about the message than it is about me. When it becomes more about the message than it is about me. Jeremiah's heart has been captivated by God. 
And it's a deep personal conviction that God has something to say, that the world God laid out is best lived the way God intended. The way the world, God laid the world out is best lived the way God intended. Jeremiah 1.9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah receives these words. God puts them in there. It's not like Jeremiah is sitting around one day and saying, okay, what can I say to people? Let me come up with something new. Let me come up with something exciting. That's not Jeremiah. Jeremiah looks at the history of humanity and says, God, what have you been speaking from the beginning? And where have we gone wrong? It's the same message that God delivered over and over again throughout all of human history. And Jeremiah says there is a relationship that needs to be restored, a relationship with God that needs to be fixed that impacts the relationships around us. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and they became to me a joy and a delight in my heart for I am called by your name. He found these words. He picked them up and ran with them. They became a conviction in his life that governed everything that he did. This book of Jeremiah is really long and big and it's cumbersome to read. So I wanted to kind of boil down some of the key themes from the text. Jeremiah delivers a word of warning. He wants Israel to see trouble coming and get out of its way. Trouble is coming, get out of its way. It's a word of reflection. Jeremiah looks at his audience and says, guys, you got to see the sin, the selfishness, the arrogance inside of you and acknowledge how it's tearing at your relationships. Is the northern kingdom, your brothers and sisters have fallen and you don't care. Babylon is coming. You're getting ready to be destroyed and taken captive. And it's all because of your selfishness and your arrogance. Then he moves and he says, okay, there's a message of trust to see God's faithfulness when the enemy is at the door. Babylon is at their door. See God's faithfulness. Maybe you've got some enemies that seem to be at your door this morning. And that's a message Jeremiah wants to say to you is that you can trust God because he is there. He is faithful. He's not left you. The next thing is a message of hope to see God's power despite the forces that oppose them. When everything seems against them, God is not powerless. And a word of encouragement, to see the path ahead, as difficult as it may be, as possible. To see the path ahead as possible. Jeremiah's message is driven by conviction. And it's conviction in truth. Something has gripped his life and he's got to get this message out regardless of the consequences. The men in, in that kingdom ridiculed him oppressed him, tried to kill him, looked down upon him. But he said, this message is so important that if I don't deliver it, there is going to be death and destruction, and you have to hear it. For Jeremiah, conviction overrides consequences. Conviction overrides consequences. We know this in D.C. Everybody seems to want to come here to protest something, to talk about something. Everybody comes here with a message Something, an injustice that has to be righted, an issue that needs to be talked about, something that needs to change. And they come here with such passion and conviction that they are willing to stop at nothing to get their message across. They don't care about imprisonment, fines, whatever it is, the cost of living, that's a consequence. Everything else, because they have a message that has to be given. Conviction overrides consequence. I want to put that relationally this morning. Jeremiah loves people more than he needs people. 
He loves people more than he needs people. Love and need are two completely different things. Love means we speak the truth. We speak openly, honestly to one another, that we have a message that God has given us and we speak it with love and and grace. Needing others means we tell them a version of the truth that we think they want to hear. When we need others, what we're doing is looking at them saying, okay, you have something that you need to give me, and so I need to adapt who I am, what I say, how I say it, how I live around you, because you have the power to give me something I feel I need. You have the ability to boost my self-esteem or give me a raise or keep me employed, whatever those things are. And what Jeremiah is telling us is that we have to need people less and love people more. We have to need people less and love people more. Needing others for our own purpose grants them control over us. When we have a strong desire for an emotional or a physical or a material need, and we see somebody's got the possibility to give it to us, we're basically granting them all the control over who we are. We're saying there's something that you have that I want, and we begin to please that person. We begin to adapt ourselves to that person. We become consumed with their opinions if they accept us or not, or what they assess of us, how they view us. Our convictions, when we allow this need to override who we are, become watered down. Our message becomes watered down. It becomes less impactful because we change everything within us, everything that we've been called to, our purpose, our identity, to fit the expectations of the other individual. And so because of this, we carry around several false truths. If only I had a spouse, I wouldn't feel lonely. How many of you know that after years of being married or just a bad fight, you can be three inches from your spouse and still feel incredibly lonely? A need that we carry with ourselves. If my wife would only respect me, if my husband would only encourage me more, if my children would only obey me, that would be nice. If only he or she would show interest in me. If only my boss would recognize my contributions. Each one of these are a need that we feel, that we look to the people around us and say, okay, this is something I need from you. Fill me up. Make me feel better about myself. Make me feel significant. Give me a purpose. Give me an identity. If you only give me what I feel I need, I'm going to be complete. But each of these places, the other person in control of us. And whatever or whoever we need something from has power has power over us. Jeremiah 20, verse 8. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day. It's a hard message, and the people of Israel have not responded positively to him. If I say I will not mention him, speaking of God, or speak in his name, there is within me something like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. That is conviction, that despite the ridicule, Despite the reproach, the derision, there is something that so tangibly grips Jeremiah's life that he says, regardless of all these things, I must speak it because it's just welling up inside of me. And he does this because he loves the people. He does it because there's something that they need to hear. So how can we begin to love people more and need them less? How do we make this transition to where our relationship with God and our relationship with others is thriving and healthy loving, life-giving, rather than needing. The Westminster Catechism says this. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and delight in him always. And the Westminster Catechism has been around for 450 years, and it's an amazing way to teach people about the tenets, the basic beliefs of Christian faith. And this is one of the key lines in there that's repeated almost everywhere. The chief end of man is to glorify God and delight in him forever. Glorify God, the chief end of man. Jeremiah understands the end goal of life is to fear and glorify God. To fear and glorify God. And what this does when we fear and glorify God is it makes God big in our eyes. See, our need of other people makes people big in our eyes. We begin to kind of elevate their status and say, you've got something to give me. You've got something great, and I want to latch onto that, and I need that. And if I don't have that, something breaks down. And that makes God big, or people, makes people very big. And the Westminster Catechism is saying to us, the chief end of our lives is to glorify God, to make God big. Because when we make God big, people become smaller doesn't mean they're insignificant or unnecessary. It just means that's not our source of life, our source of hope, our source of meaning. Needing others gives them the place of glory and thereby sabotages our purpose, our significance, and our identity. We glorify God in an amazing way when we love people, not when we need them. But we're only able to move beyond our love to our, or from our need to our love when we make God big. We're only able to move beyond our need for others to our love for others when we make God big, when we glorify him. Jeremiah is a hero because God is big in his eyes. He takes precedence over everything that he is, despite the odds, the obstacles, the enemies, the opposition. And he says, God, you are so big that there is a message that you have for me to give, and I'm going to speak it. He is free to love others and serve God because he's realized that glorifying God is his main goal, is the purpose of his life. In bringing glory to God, we begin to take on a new identity that reflects God. And that's a powerful thing. When we glorify God, God's character, his image is then built within us and something dramatically changes about who we are, where we place our hope, how we view ourselves, what our purpose is is. And through this process, we discover selflessness. And that selflessness leads to love and service of others. And it brings freedom from fear of man and ultimately changes the communities around us. That's why we're gathered here today is because there's something in this message that brings us together, that talks about that selflessness, and from that selflessness gives us freedom. I want to let you know that loving others can make life a little less comfortable. Loving others can make life, life less comfortable. As we begin to kind of not worry so much about people pleasing everybody and doing what everybody wants, we may not get the response from them that we hope. It's going to change some dynamics. But in this discomfort, there is discovery. In this discomfort, there is discovery. I want to read 1 John 4, 9 through 12. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. 
Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's some powerful things in here. In verses 9 and 10, there's two aspects of need. It says we live through God. Life, breath, identity, purpose, significance is a need that we carry. And verse 9 says that need is met in God. Verse 10, God sent his only son, Jesus, to die as an atoning sacrifice for us. That was a need that we had, that selfishness, that pride, that arrogance, the flesh, the sin that we carry within us that tears at our relationships is something that we needed God to address. It's a need that we carry. First half is about need. The second half is about love. And where is that love oriented? It's oriented to loving others. Because we have our needs bound up in verse 9 and 10, what God has done, what God is doing, we are then set free to love other people in a way that God loves them. And what's powerful in this, where the discovery comes in, is that when we love people, when our identity is bound up in God, and we love people, verse 12, we acknowledge no one's ever seen God. But when we live this way, making God big, needing God first, glorifying God, and loving people second, God lives in our midst. He lives in our community. He lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. His love is made complete in our community. And that is the calling of the Christian community, is to bear the image of God and to demonstrate and live a life of love selflessness, honesty, truth, conviction of this message that radically changes everything around us. It's not in our need of others, but in our love of others that God has revealed. This is the heroic message of Jeremiah. We pick this story up with Jesus, that in his selflessness, communities are changed. In his love of others, communities are changed. Our lives are changed. His need of others would have meant that he would have created a political uprising and overthrown Rome, and likely his story would have lived on for a century because he did what everybody wanted him to do. But what he says is he looks at our situation and says, there's something greater that you need than political deliverance. There's something greater that you need than political freedom says there's an identity change that needs to take place, and I'm willing to offer that to you, but it's not going to be in the way that you imagined. But I'm going to speak it to you. I'm going to offer it to you because of love. And something amazing changes the course of history. This is the challenge we have before us this morning. When we love people more than we need them, than we need their approval, their acceptance, their assets, when conviction overrides consequences, God's love is perfected in us. And we get a glimpse of God's work in a painful world. We get a glimpse of God's work in this world. This morning, we're going to conclude with communion. And I'm going to ask the communion team to go ahead and get the elements, prepare the plates and everything else, and come forward and take your places. Um, And I'm going to talk for a few minutes while they do that. Communion is a symbol of Jesus' selfless sacrifice, his sacrifice of love of his message, of this reunifying of relationship between God and humanity. His love took precedence over everything else in his life. 
He speaks of message of grace and forgiveness, almost the same messages of Jeremiah, this warning that we need to see trouble coming and get out of its way, that we need to acknowledge that there's something inside of us that tears at the relationships around us and with God. But there's hope that we can trust him, that there's encouragement that the path ahead is possible. It's a powerful image that we have of Jesus coming into this earth and saying there's something so powerful, I don't care the consequences, I'm willing to die for you, to be raised again, to give you what you need to answer something within you because I love you and I want a relationship with you. That's what communion reminds us of this morning. Before it's it's passed out, I want to remind you or challenge you to reflect on these two things. What is the message and the motivation of your life? What is the message and the motivation of your life? Is your message controlled by the fears and needs of others? What you think you can get from them? Are you watering down that conviction, who God's called you to be, or that message that we follow? Or is it a message that reflects the selflessness and love of Jesus? Are we living in such a way that our lives reflect the selflessness and love of Jesus? Where does your motivation lie? Are you unintentionally giving glory to people, making them big? Or are you giving glory to God? God seems big in our lives, and we have our need from him. At this point, we're going to go ahead and dismiss West Falls Church, and Pastor John's going to conclude over there. I'm going to ask that the community team go ahead and distribute the elements. Um, What we're going to do is once everybody's been served, we're going to come back and take together. So hold on to that cup and that bread, and we'll partake together and then conclude in prayer. We receive communion from the night that Jesus was betrayed. His audience didn't necessarily agree with his message. He was confronted by something powerful. He was betrayed by his friends. He was crucified by his own people and by the Roman government because of love, because he had a message that was so strong that we needed to hear, that he said, I don't care what people can do to me. Ultimately, my end goal is glorifying God. That's what we remember in communion this morning. This bread and this juice is a reminder of his body and his blood. The powerful story, the the word of encouragement, hope, and trust in all this is that it didn't end with his death. And the reason why we celebrate this today is because of his resurrection, that there is hope, that there is new life, that we can live through him just as he lived through every persecution that he faced. This morning, I want us to take this crack of remembering the sacrifice, the love of Jesus. Let us take and eat. Similarly, on the night he was betrayed, he said, this is the the juice that reflects the blood, this new covenant, this new relationship that I want to have with you. Let's take and drink this. As you go through this week, I want you to ask yourself, have I needed people more than I've loved them? Have I glorified people more than I've glorified God? Let us pray this morning. Father, we confess to you 
that people tend to have a lot of power over us. What they think of us, how they talk to us, what they do. Lord, we are swayed so easily, Lord, by the opinions of others, the expectations of others. And I ask in this moment that each one of us here would begin a relationship with you where our view of you is bigger than it was when we came in. Lord, that man might have less of a hold on our lives and that we would grant you the power, the control over who we are. We ask that you become big in our eyes. Do something this week that grips our attention and our hearts that we might experience and know you in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen.